This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Oh, man. A lot of pain in the emerging markets area. Emerging market stocks off more than 6% this year, but off about 15% from the late January high. Let's dig into what ETFs can tell you about emerging market sentiment. Our Damien Sassauer is fixed income strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, put out some research about just that. Nice to see you. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. Emerging markets, not so good. Not so good. Not so good. <laughs> so tell me what you're looking at and what it's maybe telling you about the emerging market world. Sure, sure. So so back in January, you know, we, we, we caught a whiff of the fact that, you know, emerging markets were beginning to... Um, and they were beginning to feel a little bit of pain, right? And, you know, what we went back is we traced open interest in EMB, which is the world's largest emerging market bond ETF. It's uh, JP Morgan. It tracks the JP Morgan uh, EM Global Core, and it's issued by iShares BlackRock. And so, you know, what happened, which is interesting, is open interest didn't just rise. It surged, like, sixfold. <laughs> yeah. And it's still at near its all-time highs. Um, and the reason for that, if you just look back, is, is actually quite interesting and has some real relevance for today. Correlations between emerging market bonds and emerging market equities began to diverge back in, 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 in at the end of January, right? It was emerging market debt, which led losses here. And now equities are only beginning to feel the pain, right? So, yeah. so what, what's- Is that typically what happens? Oh, no, nah, not typically. I mean, no. you know, you, I mean, you know, I, look, different, different, uh, Cycles have had, you know, you know, it's been equities that have led, it's been bonds that have led. I yeah. mean, but but this time it was definitely bonds that led the way, and and so prior to that point, if you were hedging your emerging market exposure and you were a foreign uh, creditor, you were a bond investor effectively, you would use. EM equity ETF options to hedge your beta risk because they were liquid and they were available. There were no real options available on EMB, but as that bond ETF grew the option market makers were able to issue more options on it. And so now you have, you know, this surge in open interest in this, you know, liquid EMB options market where EM creditors can effectively hedge their downside risk. And so we looked at that and we looked at what kind of was the catalyst for that happening. And now what we're seeing is a reconvergence of correlations, which speaks which basically speaks to what we're seeing in all markets, in all asset classes now. When you feel the pain, such as we're feeling not only in emerging markets, but in U.S. equities and, and FX and the whole thing, all correlations point to one and they typically all go down at the same time. And, and that, that's kind of what we're seeing. So, OK. So does it tell you – does it indicate then what, what's to come? More yeah. of the same or what? So what we would look for at least you know, is – what we would hope to see in order for emerging markets to begin to show that maybe we're closer to the end of the pain here right. is that open interest to come off and to come off quite significantly. Now, I don't know if it will because that ETF itself has just become such a beast. Yeah. But, you know, the reality is, um, you know, if, if we do see open interest sort of normalize, um, it could Flow's be a, still going into it? Big time flow still going into it? I mean, I, for, for, no, flows are actually uh, coming out of Com it, right? Oh, right, 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 and, right. And, and, and what I think is happening is, you know, 
if we see open interest sort of normalize, I mean, not go back down to levels we had seen back in January, but just sort of normalize to a point where, hey, you know, um, it, it could be an indicator that, you know, we're closer to the end and that the sour sentiment, which is kind of overhanging the market, is really uh, is really getting to be behind us. So I said that to you when you walked in before we started. I said, you know, it's when everybody everybody's so much beating on, hating on emerging markets at this point. That to me, exactly. That to me says, well, maybe it's time to start looking. But 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 I don't know. I, I don't feel like we necessarily have Carol, a little bit deeper. I mean, you have to understand yeah. these these option market makers who who make markets in these options. What they're trying to do is they they need realized volatility. I mean, yeah. realized to, to go up and down and in, in big swings in order for them to make money. If that doesn't occur, that's going to be them. Then they're going to start unwinding their option positions. That open interest is going to compress, and that's when we're going to be closer to the end. So that's what we're looking for. But we haven't seen that yet. No. Interesting. Interesting. Um. Ha. Huh. Okay. All right, so we just got to wait. <laughs> well, I'm I mean, asking you to look like into this crystal, but you're right. But that's what we have to wait for. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean those are just some of the signals, and I mean I, I think right now it's it's a matter of of correlations. I mean I think there was a big there's a big Morgan Stanley uh, Global Correlation Index that is pushing on levels that we haven't seen in some time. Um, I was just reading that just back at my desk, and and you know that speaks to what we're looking at. You know, just the fact that correlations across asset classes are getting tighter and tighter. Yeah. And when that happens, there's usually a breaking point, and um, and we haven't yet seen that, but it, it just feels with some of the red on these screens that we're getting pretty close. When the correlations are so close, it's everything pretty much tra- – it feels like everything trading in tandem, right? Yeah, it's yeah. not like different asset classes or so on are, are breaking out and be- and kind of trading on the fundamentals. To use mathematical terms, all betas point to one and they're typically <laughs> going down at the same time. Yeah, but, so so are, uh, this is the emerging market class, obviously. Did you say it was the same thing for like the developed markets? So, you know, that's that's the interesting thing and, and, and I, I, I have to admit and concede I don't know how more Stanley, you know, yeah. you know, puts together that global correlation index, right? But I'm sure it is, you know, cross, I know what it is. It's actually cross bonds, rates, um, uh, which are rates, uh, equities, uh, FX, and they're looking at these different asset class correlations. And then they're just basically, you know, kind of taking some sort of an average and trying to say, where are we relative to where we've been in the past? And and it's pushing on high levels. And so that means when, when these correlations sort of converge and all betas kind of start to point to one, it's, it's time to, you know, maybe uh, uh, find a, a safe haven asset to hide out in or something defensive or just go to cash and you sound a little stressed i i wouldn't say i'm stressed because um you know this is this is a much overdue correction for emerging markets and i think it's healthy um uh, it's not going to be healthy in some places like argentina and turkey but i think it's a healthy correction that's long overdue and 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 it's very possible that once it works its way out we could see another quick we could move around to the other side of the cycle potentially one would hope so but you know we have you know the fed kind of uh, tapering and the ecb and and you know there's not going to be as much liquidity out there so hopefully we'll see well, well, but there was that story in the Bloomberg earlier this week that said, wait a minute, folks, you know, it is still pretty much an easy monetary cycle. If you look at how much is on the balance sheets of all these central banks, I mean, they haven't just kind of gotten rid of all of it all sure. at once. No, there's $20 <laughs> trillion out there among the big four. You're absolutely right. Um, always an interesting perspective from you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Damien Sassauer. He's fixed income strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Check out his work at Bloomberg.com. All right. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets on this Tuesday afternoon. I'm Carol Master. Quick check on the trade for you. We mentioned lower on equities. Dow Jones Industrial Average down about 1.1%, down 278 points. The S&P a decline of 0.4%, down about 12 points. NASDAQ also down about half a percentage point. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio.
So listen to this, everybody. The U.S. said to be the most exposed when it comes to cybersecurity threats. That's the finding of a recent survey. Here to explain, Corey Thomas, he is president and CEO of the Boston-based security and analytical software company Rapid7. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Welcome to Bloomberg. Carol, thanks for having me on the show. Tell me a little bit about this survey that you guys did. What exactly did you look at and what were some of the conclusions? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, we started doing a survey of the public Internet. And our goal was simple is how many exposed devices are on the Internet? Meaning that like from you, from your home, from anywhere in the world, you can reach out and you can touch those devices, issue commands to them and get responses back. And we found that there's a shocking number of devices that are publicly connected to the Internet. But more importantly, a shocking number of those devices are highly vulnerable and exposed. And you found the most what in the United States? Yeah, this year we found the this most. This is of everybody. You're not just talking government. You're talking everybody. We're talking or about what? the entire internet footprint. So the way to think okay. about it is that we do port scans, and a simple way to think about that is we send requests out and see what we get back. Yeah. Uh, all over the world, and we see how many uh, how many people respond to those requests, uh, and then we once we get the response, we actually interpret how vulnerable uh, those services are. Who are you reaching out to when you do something like that? So every single so the way to think about it is we do a broad scan of all the IP addresses in the world. So you think about every computer has a unique um, IP address associated with it. Uh, how do you know all those addresses? Uh, and so there's pretty standard formulations for actually how you actually figure out what addresses are available. And a big part of it is we just test and probe and send out requests and see who responds. So the way to think about it, how you know who's home? Well, you can go knock on some doors and see who opens the door. It's right. the equivalent of that on the internet. And it amazes me that you feel like you're so protected sitting on your little laptop or something and you think it's just you and your information, but we know that's not the case. Absolutely. I mean, a, a big part of, I think, many people's and organizations' negligence is that it's easier not to think about it. And there is a feeling because, you know, you're at home, you're at your office, uh, there's a feeling of security even though it doesn't necessarily exist. You know, before we sat down or as you sat down and you said, I'm headed down to the nation's capital, down to Washington. Uh, that's tomorrow, right? Yep, absolutely. Um, and you're going to be talking with lawmakers. And I said to you, do they really understand cybersecurity and the threats that are out there? Yeah, and I would say they're trying to. And I, I truly believe that cybersecurity is a bipartisan um, issue. I think the thing that lawmakers and that we especially here are running into is cybersecurity doesn't fit fit into our traditional models of governing. So if you think about we have things that we address at the um, – local level, at the state level, at right. the federal level, and then we have treaties. If you think about technology, well, I'm a user here, but like every day I'm using services and technology that are made somewhere else, that are run on servers somewhere else. The governance framework for that is not one that's actually um, we're very used to. Well, should it be, and I've, I've, thought, I've thought about this a lot, Corey, especially when we have you know, various hacks and problems, should there not be some kind of federal government umbrella over things to secure networks, to secure information, at least on a certain big level. Yeah, I think there are some fundamental things. Why is, it, anything, should, why is it any different than like defense, yeah, traditional defense? Absolutely. There are some things that absolutely have to be centralized. Um, we're certainly big supporters of centralizing policy, so you don't have every state yeah. and every regulator creating their own policy, although there's some good reasons why that happens occasionally. Um, but I think that even if you actually have centralized defense, the question is defense of what? Um, and so you want centralized defense of the federal government systems. That makes complete sense. And I think right. that there's some work underway to actually do that and to make that better. Um, but centralized defense also means that you may be centralizing innovation. 
Right. And so do you want the federal government telling companies that you can't create new services because we haven't validated that they're secure? Uh, and that's like where you run into a lot of stuff down. Exactly. So that's where you run into sort of like very specific issues of control and governance. You guys are on fire. I'm going to switch gears. Uh, stock's up about 75% this year. Um, tell me about the business right now. Yeah. So we had a very simple thesis is that over time, people will invest in the single most important issue of cybersecurity, which is how do they manage and maintain the innovation footprint that our society creates, uh, which is the root cause of why we have so many cybersecurity issues. We just don't maintain and manage our technology infrastructure from a security perspective. We believe that analytics and automation were the key to that, uh, and customers have been voting um, with their wallets. They've been voting with their time, uh, and our business is doing quite well because of that. Any new trends that you're seeing in terms of uh, companies and what their what their priorities are? Yeah, so the, and it's one of the core catalysts that's driving our business. What I would say is cybersecurity for companies is becoming more professionalized. And so they moved away from the flavor of the month and just buying one hot widget of everything. Yeah. And they're really tying together people, process, and technology to look at how they manage a sustainable cybersecurity environment in an innovation economy. And by the way, we can't lose sight that this is an innovation economy. Um, are you still waiting for – I feel like we've had a lot of big hacks already. Is there – should we just assume that this is kind of a way of life? Well, it's a way of life, but we actually should not become numb to it. Yeah. And so, like, um, just like the – we have bad things that happen. We have theft. We have a whole bunch of bad things that happen. But we shouldn't become numb to it because many of the issues that we actually have are addressable. And, and the, the message that I actually give to lots of people, whether it's lawmakers or our customers, is that we can do things about this. What nation was the most secure? Um, oh, I can't remember. It was so far down the list. It tends to be countries <laughs> Sorry, that I actually have no that. technology footprint seem to be the most secure. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Yes. Um, Corey, great to get some time. Good luck tomorrow. Thank you so much. Corey Thomas, he's president and chief executive officer at Rapid7, based in Boston, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Tuesday. Yeah, making it uh, work in this marketplace, it's a difficult one, to say the least, an interesting one, and lots of different uh, opinions. Our next guest says she's finding opportunities when it comes to the energy sector, select areas, though. Let's hear why Anne Maletti is back with us, lead portfolio manager for the PMV equity team over at Wells Fargo Asset Management, $496 billion in assets under management, based in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. I got it right. In our Bloomberg 1130 <laughs> studio. Welcome back. Thanks, Carol. Thanks for having me. How do you make sense of what's going on? There's so much information. Um, it is interesting to look at the indices. You know, we mm-hmm. see small caps moving, uh, significantly yeah. higher outperforming, larger caps. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're watching trade news. What is it that you think we need to focus on in this environment? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. The market seems to move on the headlines, yeah. and there's days that it seems to care more than others. Certainly today is one of those days where the headlines seem to matter more than others. Why? I think because it was a little bit more of the doubling down, um, a little bit more stern. I'm not giving up on these tariffs. I really mean business. And, you know, the $200 seemed like a big number. Um, That, I think, took the market by surprise. You know, he has been moving a little bit with a stick and a carrot, Mm -hmm. still seemingly wanting to make deals. 
but this was a pretty big stick out today. You guys have a ton of money under management, uh, big, big managers. Um, what are you seeing in terms of investment flows, and what are you hearing from some of your bigger investors? Yeah, I think, you know, we have – flows have been pretty stable. I think there's been some fear in the marketplace, but also people that are looking for opportunities as well and looking where they should allocate their money. And I think asset allocation is really the most important thing right Here, now. I have some ideas. Emerging markets. There, you know, emerging They've been beaten mar- up. <laughs> you know, emerging markets have been. And, yeah. you know, you pointed out the small cap stocks have been rallying. I think that's been, in some ways, people have been going there to hide. If you're worried about tariffs or if you're worried about those places, people have been running a small cap. But that means that those areas of the market, you know, have been inflated a little bit. Right. And so where we tend to look is, what's been ignored, what might be attractive from a valuation standpoint. And as you mentioned earlier, energy is one of those places. How do you want to select? So, yeah. So let's talk about that because you can, you can do the drillers, you can do the integrated oil companies. There's a lot of ways to play it. So what is, what is the preferred way? So within the E&P space, um, and energy, I should point out one of our best performing groups of the year. If you look at the S and P 500, you know, it it has been, and you know, within the energy space, what I like is the Permian names and those names actually, as of late, have really sold off. And so in some cases, as much as 20 25% declines in the recent month, um, four to six weeks. So now, that would include, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we why, have are a, they, why are we seeing pressure? So because what happened is that area of the market has been the cheapest area to drill. Mm-hmm. So shale drilling, the Permian has been the cheapest area to go to get oil. Cheaper than in, the Bakken? Yes. Mm-hmm. The depth of inventory is very, very good. Um, it's been the most interesting place to go. And so the great news, that's been the great news. The bad news about it is it's created a bottleneck in terms of getting it out. And so now what has happened is there's fear that a bottleneck's been created. There's not enough pipelines to get it out. And so people are worried about the oil being trapped there. And so those names have sold off. But I think it's bringing a unique opportunity to get some of the best plays with deep inventory good balance sheets and good management teams. That leads you to um, Concho Resources. Yes. Concho is one of the uh, companies we like. They're in the process of also acquiring RSP. Mm-hmm. So RSP is another name that you could buy. It's trading at a you know about a 1.5% discount to Concho, so it's another way of getting exposure there. Um, Matador Resources is another name. Mm-hmm. Parsley Energy. Um, also, these are definitely your smaller players. You know, mid cap, yeah, yeah mid mid cap players. Now we have this OPEC meeting coming up at the end of the week, and you know, oil is still a commodity, right? And and these stocks will trade with the commodity, and so I think investors also have to be aware, and I certainly am, that this this meeting's coming up, and we're expecting OPEC to probably go ahead and put more oil Production. in the marketplace. Although we're not expecting it's, as much as that we initially no. thought. At least that exactly. was the story we were kind of kicking around on Monday. Exactly. That's why you saw kind of the trade a little exactly. bit. Exactly. And I think what people also realize is, you know, market the inventory has been taken out of the market with Venezuela and the trade sanctions in Iran as well. And so even a little extra coming into the market might just get us back into balance where we started off the year. So, and, and inventories really are in good shape. So, and is it, all, is it, 
that's where you would put new money to work right now is some of these energy Selectively. names? Selectively. Do you not like anything else? Well, there are other places yeah. in the market we like. I mean, I think one of the areas where we're also focused on is if we really think growth can be sustained and the economy can muddle along and maybe even get a little bit better, it really is going to be somewhat dependent on whether or not this capital expending or the capital mm-hmm. um, spend cycle really ramps up. And Wells Asset Management just put out their mid-year insight piece. And many of the managers that I work with, both fixed income and equity managers, really do believe that this capital spending cycle has started. We did see the increase in capital spending in Q1 earnings. Um, and if that but continues, that's backwards looking. It There's is. so much that has it happened, is. I feel like, it since is. there. It is. It's funny. You know, March seems just like a little bit ago. No, but, but I just think even June, the last month or so. You're right. You're um, right. And, and I, I do wonder, and I guess when, when we get into the earnings cycle, which is going to start, you know, soon, um, mm-hmm. we will get an idea of what CEOs are saying about whether they're holding back on, on capital expenditures, hiring, and so on, right. because they just want to see how things are going to play out in terms yeah. of trade and some other factors. Yeah. And I think, you know, today is a tough day for investors, because when you see the market down this much, it's easy to be negative. It's easy to think of all the negative things that are going it's on. It's only 1% on the Dow. It is. Man. It is. I mean, only with, four tenths of a percent and, and, on the and, 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 and that's, but Carol, that's what I, I, you know, as an investor, I, you know, certainly there are a lot of good things happening underneath. But today, when you listen to the news and when you think what's yeah. going on, it's, it's really easy for people to kind of be very negative. So I do believe there are a lot of positives going on. We're certainly hearing it. We spend a lot of time talking to management teams, and we still hear a lot of optimism, a lot of optimism regarding M&A, a lot of optimism regarding putting some money to work toward right. that capital spending Do cycle. You, I keep kind of um, hammering this, though. When you're seeing a fair amount of M&A, yes, it can mm-hmm. be optimism about the outlook. It can also be towards the end of the cycle yeah. when people are like, okay, how do I get some growth yeah. Yeah. <laughs> here? You're right. I buy it. You're right. You're right. And we talked about this the last time I was yeah. here. You know, M&A does tend to happen toward the end of the cycle. One, capital markets are you know, open and it's easier to have right. deals happen when those, you know, when the markets are open and people are looking to the, grow. I mean, the investors that you talk to, you say that they talk about a fair amount of optimism, more optimism versus pessimism, pessimism, well, just got about 20 seconds. You know, I, yeah, it's management teams that I'm speaking to that okay. tend to be, so the CEOs and CFOs tend to be more optimistic this year than they were at the same time last year. Huh. I think investors tend to still be a little bit cautious. They hear all of these things about what's going on in the marketplace, and they're still cautious, but they're looking for places to put their money. Nice to get some time with you, Anne. Be well. Anne Maletti, Lead Portfolio Manager for the PMV Equity Team at Wells Fargo Asset Management, based in Wisconsin, in our New York studio on this Tuesday. You're listening to Bloomberg. So one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg today has to do with Jeffries. It has to do with how the company's dealmakers are extending its uh, their winning streak, I should say. Story by Laura Keller. She's our financial reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. One of the most read stories. It usually is on their earnings days, yeah. <laughs> People like to read about Jeffries Group. They really do. Tell me, tell me more. First of all, remind us who Jeffries is. Yes. So Jeffries is one of our smaller investment banking firms yeah. that we follow. Pretty big, but still one of the smaller ones by comparison to the larger Wall Street firms. And, you know, they report on this fiscal quarter, Carol. So they, they sort of have this off-cycle kind of period 
about three weeks before our big banks are going to go ahead and report. So in the past, we used to look at them as this bellwether for trading, especially on the fixed income side. Right. Corporate bonds is a big thing for them. Distressed debt, high yield, a lot of risky type of debt that's traded through there. I mean, of course, they also trade a lot of equities as well, a lot of stocks, um, and and they do banking. But more and more, they do more investment banking. And so they're actually less of a comparable for you know what we might see from the bigger banks. Why are they moving away from trading? It's been a strategic priority of theirs because yeah. a lot of the trading, I mean, this is true for the war- larger Wall Street firms as well, it's so lumpy. So if they do something really well one quarter, that's great, and they have yeah. this really good number. But then the next quarter, especially with Jefferies, because they do have a different model than the bigger banks, they're, they're actually not a bank. By thy definition, no bank holding company. Uh-huh. So they they operate differently. They have different rules. So I think that ends up making you swing harder, you know, good or bad right. than the other banks. And for investors. I mean, they can't own the stock just of Jefferies, the investment bank. They've always had to hold the parent that used to be known as Lucadia. Right. And now right. they're known as Jefferies that. also. But that was always very difficult for, for the investor to really take. So I think as, you know, as the company gets older, you want to have more of this normal volatility in your earnings. You don't want to have these big swings. But M&A can also swing. That's true. It can. So I'm curious about this bet. Do people think it's the right bet for them? You know, it's funny. I was actually having a conversation with a, an investor, a person who described themselves as an investor on Twitter. And they were talking about how, you know, maybe this makes them an easier comp to something like some of our other investment banks that we cover, Evercore, Lazard. You know, they're smaller, but they have a more stable earnings picture from quarter to quarter. I do wonder, as you said, maybe that they're not such a great indicator for what's to come from some of the big banks um, who do rely a lot on trading. Having said that, we've seen a lot of volatility. Should we assume, Laura, that those big banks, in terms of their trading numbers, that they're going to be better? I mean, everybody who says, I don't care where they're up or down. I just want movement because that's how we make money. Jamie Dimon's favorite thing is, why are you looking at the <laughs> quarterly results in trading? It doesn't even matter. But, you know, for the traders who are on the desk who might be listening to us now, you know, that, that matters a lot. Right. And, and you can make a lot of money or lose a lot of money in those businesses. So the banks have actually told us themselves, some of them have previewed what it might look like coming forward here once we hear from them in three weeks. So pretty much everybody says overall trading is going to be flat. Huh. The, the equity side, you know, you'll expect to see that better than fixed income. They have telegraphed that. Fixed income is not doing so well. And Jeffries also said today as well, you know, March was light activity, especially in corporate bonds, those kinds of things. So I think you'll see that from some of these other firms. I mean, they don't have anything to say that that's not happening. Right. But in terms of how good equities could be, we haven't really gotten a good picture of that. What always fascinates me, too, is, right, you have a market environment and one bank can just do really well, right? It just depends on their positions, their trades, correct? And another one can do really poorly. And to their customers, you know, if you're someone who's more focused on hedge funds, for example, versus some of the more institutional real money asset managers, I mean, that's a different client mix and they trade different kinds of stocks. Yeah. So in terms of an inventory and what you're keeping, I mean, each bank kind of They cater to different types of clients. So even though they're all trading stocks, they might not end up with the same picture. I always love to hear, um, Laura, the commentary because I do feel like especially we're in this really interesting position where I hear a lot of optimism and yet I feel like everybody kind of hates what's going on in the market. So I am curious to see what these bank 
CEOs have to say. Right. No, I'm glad you touched on that, Carol, because it's something I always think about yeah. when you have the executives, especially talking about the M&A picture. You know, right. what are the corporations going to be doing? Are they going to borrow? Are they going to be creating more mergers? And you always hear everybody saying after the tax overhaul that there's going to be all this activity. The pipelines are healthy. But you even heard uh, one of the executives from Citigroup the other week say, well, listen, everyone always has a pipeline, but it's about converting that pipeline into actual activity. <laughs> like, it's like talking versus action. Exactly. And we're still huh. waiting for the action side of that equation. The rate environment, though, is getting more favorable for the big banks, correct? Yeah. I mean, anytime you see the, the curve moving the way they want to move, they like that. I mean, Even though there's been compression, too, right? Yeah. I mean, they don't want to see an inverted curve, but they, they can still deal with it in, in other ways. So we haven't heard as much about that in terms of banks being super unpleased with the way things are going. Right. Because you are having volatility in other ways that they you know tend to like. But definitely for, you know, other parts of the business, not necessarily just stock and bond trading, but other pieces like the lending side of their business, that comes into play much more. I was curious if you were listening to Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein, anything that kind of jumped out for you. And of course, he's moving away from the position, right? But I forget when he's done. Is it the end of the year? He hasn't really been exactly definitive on the timeline, I think purposefully. Right, right. But we know David Zalman will be coming in at some point soon. Or John Micklethwaite, of course, uh, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News, um, sitting down with uh, Lloyd Blankfein, I think from the uh, Economic Bank of New York, or Economic Club Club of New York, York. forgive me, um, and talking about a lot of things. Anything that jumped out for you? Yeah. One thing that I thought was really interesting, we're always trying entertaining, I he, must say. He is. He's a, he is a very good speaker without you know, necessarily showing you his exact position on something. Right. So he did talk a lot for those who are following it you know, on the debate about immigration. Very much. He, he said he had a lot to say. I don't know that I feel like I know his position one way or another, but right. he had a lot to say. I think for people who are interested in financial markets, what Lloyd was talking about on the credit bubble was just interesting because to have a CEO, you know, who's, his business is to make markets, his business is to continue banking these companies companies who want to make these mergers, you know, he was sort of saying, well, look, in hindsight, you'll be able to go back and see whether we're actually in a credit bubble. But from someone in my position, I can never really say that, you know, because he is a person who has to make these markets, make these things happen. So I just thought that was so interesting because he sort of laid it a little bit at the feet of the journalist to figure out how that would go on with the benefit of hindsight, of course. So... You, wait, that wait, seems wait, like our job. Wait, he laid it at the feet of journalists to figure out like when the next credit, credit bubble essentially or what? Well, he's not, he wasn't quite so definitive, of okay. course. But, you know, he sort of definitely put it off from himself to have to figure out whether we are at the top of the cycle or not. It's, I, you know, like I said, I think we're at this very interesting time where I can have one person on who's very enthusiastic. I had a guest yesterday, a market guest, who said, I think we're only two years into this market cycle because it was only two years ago that she felt like things had started to normalize out. Oh, interesting. Okay. You know, versus that it's a, like that we're long in the tooth with this cycle. So, And then I can have somebody come in who says, we're at the top. We're seeing, you know, right. certainly in real estate, I hear that and stuff. So. And it depends to which technicals you're looking at because I see yeah. so many charts that exactly, as you say, illustrate we're far from the end and then others that say, look, this is absolutely even past where we were before the crisis. Well, we're going to get ready for your coverage of the banks. I know it's going to get busy for you in a couple of weeks. And everybody should go to Bloomberg.com. Check out that conversation with Lloyd Blankfein. Uh, a good one. And this was a great one. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Laura Keller. She's financial reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us.
the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Matt Schreiber is president and chief investment strategist at WBI Investments. They've got $2 billion in assets under management based in Red Bank, New Jersey. And that's where we find Matt today on this sunny Tuesday afternoon. Hi, Matt. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Tell me a little bit about uh, what you're hearing from clients. Well, I think people are starting to worry a little bit more about risk, and uh, that seems to be showing up in uh, the market action today a little bit. So, you know, it went from, uh, you know, kind of wanting to be passively invested and get all of the markets upside, and now I hear that uh, people are really, you know, starting to little worry, worry a little bit more about trade wars and the downside and, and those type of things here. What's interesting, though, volatility has come way down. I don't know how much attention you pay to it. Our Dave Wilson had an interesting uh, chart of the day, and he just talked about how calm has been restored to U.S. trading after turbulence that we saw earlier this year. And he's basically taking a look at uh, the S&P 500 index's average daily percentage change. This is some research out from Bespoke Investment. Uh, and the indicator dropping to about 0.52% on Monday from a peak of one. 0.12% back in mid-April. So, you know, we're seeing that calm down, um, and yet you're hearing that investors are a little bit more nervous. What specifically? What They knock on your door, they give you a call, they come into your offices, and they say what? Well, you know, they're they're saying that they're they're just a little bit worried about the rhetoric and uh, you know this tit for tat trade war and how that might affect you know stocks fundamentals and you know the the prices of the securities in their portfolio. So they're a little worried about the rhetoric. And and what we tell them is that uh, if you haven't noticed, uh, you know, the president has you know been carrying a very big bat and he likes to you know hit people over the head with it as hard as he can. And if they want to retaliate, then he'll hit them again and uh, you know eventually um, they'll come to the bargaining table and I think with China here that's exactly what you're going to see they're hitting back but you know they have uh, they probably don't have the reserves to to last a long time GDP's moving in the wrong direction so you know it's not on the rocket ship growth trajectory it was uh, five or ten years ago so they need us more than uh, we need them and I think, you know, that's that's what, um, you know, the president's trying to do here with some of the restructuring of these trade deals. I'm curious, too, if you're talking to your investors, and I'm just curious, I'm sure politics comes up, and I tread here carefully, but I just do think that one of the things we're going to be talking a lot about is the midterm elections and whether or not um, folks come out and vote differently because they are unhappy about what we've heard on the trade front and some other instances. I'm just curious about that. Well, I, I think that you saw um, uh, about a week or so ago, you know, the uh, election down in South Carolina mm-hmm. uh, was kind of a real wild card in that uh, the incumbent, Mark Sanford, actually ended up losing to another Republican because he was uh, critical of uh, Trump. So mm-hmm. I think that uh, some of the Republican uh, base uh, realizes that this is kind of the negotiating tactic. Um, people are obviously positioning and posturing for midterm elections and, and those type of things. So I think you're going to continue to hear, um, you know, more news on both fronts that gets very, very loud as we come into the late summer months and early fall. But I think uh, to, to one group of people, this is exactly what the doctor ordered, and to right. the, maybe another group of people, they don't like the uh, the tact that's being taken here. All, all I can 
can say is that the fundamentals underlying for companies in the United States of America are good, and there are a lot of things here that have happened that could line up um, and, and really help the economy and uh, continue this, this fundamental uh, growth that we've seen over the last couple of quarters. Well, so having said that, then, this justifies your thinking about the U.S. still the best place to invest right now. That is your thinking, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, last quarter you saw earnings rise for the S&P, you know, almost 24 percent, revenue growth 8 percent. But what we really like is small and mid-cap. Earnings growth for Russell 2000 companies up, you know, close to 40 percent, sales growth in the 9 to 10 percent ballpark. And, you know, those companies are... Uh, you know, the, the whole trade war thing doesn't even matter to those smaller companies uh, for the most part. Yes, they might have some of their business overseas, but the vast majority of them are doing more business at home than the large U.S. multinats. Right. It doesn't matter unless the small caps get hurt so much that they ultimately have to retrench, not the small caps, the large caps get hurt so much as a result of trade. They have to let go workers. They have to retrench. And then that trickles down to your smaller players who often are suppliers to bigger caps or who, you know, are providing services that individuals are buying. You know, unless we see that, unless the economy starts to fall apart, basically. Right. Exactly. I think, though, you know, 70% of America's economy is based on the consumer, and we still see a very strong consumer. So I think that gives American companies, small and large, small, mid and large, you know, some resilience here in that uh, consumer confidence is still relatively high. And, you know, people are still spending a ton of money. Well, Well, just got about 30 seconds left here. This is why you like some of the retail names, Macy's included, which has been on a tear this year. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, if I'm not mistaken, same store sales were up 3.9% on the most recent, uh, you know, number that came out. And uh, they're doing some things that are innovative for Macy's. So, you know, Macy's was kind of dead on arrival a year ago, but earnings and revenue have definitely perked up. They're paying a big, fat, juicy dividend, so you get paid to wait. And uh, so a lot of the retailers have... Uh, above average dividend yields, and right. it's a nice space to play to pick up, uh, you know, dividends over utilities and telecom. Right. Macy's uh, up about uh, 54%, paying a 3.9% dividend. Matt Schreiber, thank you so much, President and Chief Investment Strategist at WBI Investments on the phone from Red Bank, New Jersey. Stick around. We've got the close coming your way. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.